Matt Scholar, thanks for finally coming on the show. It's good to have you. Oh my God, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I do want to talk about your lustrous hair. I want to start with that because that's an important factor for rescue swimmers. We take our hair very serious. And I don't know about the PJs, but yours is lustrous. And I was jealous. You said yours was thinning. And I, I said that live on the air, but that's a lie because I saw your underwater video and that thing was flowing. You know, I think underwater is like your, your true metric if your hair is thinning or not because it just kind of floats. Now, my oldest son, he basically has a sea otter kind of glued to his hair. I watch his flow underwater and there's no scalp. You look at mine and it just basically looks like a, a topographical map of scalp. So I do appreciate the compliment. However, um, it is, you know, it's flowing in some parts, mostly the mullet area. Yeah, it's important, man. PJ's hair game is it's like rule number one. Make sure your hair looks good. And I'm sure the rescue swimmers follow the same guidance. We're going to try to get some support from the, the Manscaped people for hair products. I think they're going to back us up soon. So, right on. so we'll, we'll, no, I will no longer have to wear a hat on live podcasts. A little that's the, pomade. That's, the that's good. Yeah, a little, little paprika on my hair. Get it? Yeah. Yeah, so I can look good underwater just as, as I thought you did. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm sure you look great underwater. <laughs> I did creep on your Instagram a little bit. Like You're kite surfing as well right now, right? Is that like a like, big part of your life? In this moment? No, I'm, I'm not in this moment. But yes, uh, under normal circumstances, uh, ocean and water sports basically dominate my entire existence. Uh, so yeah, kiteboarding. There's this brand new sport out called wing foiling. You should check it out. It's like two years old. It was made here in the, the gorge and also in Maui. Um, it's just this like really cool progression, a kind of a conglomerate of windsurfing and kiteboarding and the new foils. It's so badass. Is that that like V-shaped sail thing that you just hold on to with two handles? Yeah, so it's like a wing and uh, it, it has like wing characteristics. It generates lift and it also, it has similar qualities to a kite being that it has a, an inflatable leading edge. It allows it to float and yeah, and then you ride, you hold on to that and then you ride a foil board, which is just like uh, any size of a, a board, stiff board that's atop of a hydrofoil. And then you generate power and the board comes up on the foil, which then is super efficient. And you can just kind of cruise around and dance like a little butterfly all across the water. It's, it's, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I'm not a surfer, but I call those things like the hoverboard of the sea. It is, yeah. It's, a, it's like basically the closest sensation of flying because when you're on the board, you don't see anything below you. You don't feel any resistance. You just fly. So I'm sure in your post edit, this would be a great opportunity to like overdub a video of somebody actually doing it. I can send you something if you need some content. Yeah. Or yeah. you could just tell me, what's your Instagram again? So people can just go there. Check it's it out. a special ohm parader. It's a little play on words with a, an ohm for the op. It's just a, it's a yogi okay. thing. Yeah, I like it. I dig yeah. it. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to edit this one, people. This is raw. We're raw. This is raw, this man. This is yeah. going, going so, hard. So you can go, you can check this out on YouTube and check out Matt's lustrous hair, but I'm not putting up any videos on this one. Um, but <laughs> that said, like, has the water portion of your life always been a factor? Has that always been important to you? And is that the why most, you got into PJ life? Absolutely, man. The most important part. When I was seven years old, um, I grew up overseas, spent most of my formative years in Australia, started windsurfing when I was seven. And you couldn't have convinced me when I was seven years old that I was not going to be a professional windsurfer later in life. And then, of course, you know, you know, you move to other landlocked Persian Gulf area and, you know, you don't have the opportunity to windsurf anymore. Um, but it was always something that I came back to. And uh, yeah, oddly enough, man, I, uh, I was I was hanging out I was like 18 years old and I was watching the movie The Perfect Storm. And this guy jumps out of a helicopter and swims over. And I was like, I need to do that job. 
Me, I thought it was a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. I go to the Coast Guard recruiter the very next day, and I was like, hey, uh, I watched this movie last night, and I saw this guy jump out of a helicopter, swim over in this, this like violent ocean. I was put on Earth to do that very function. Sign me up. And he's like, he's like that's really cool. Um, that guy was not a, 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 rescue, a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. He was indeed an Air Force pararescueman. Um, go talk to those guys. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So went over and chatted with the Coast Guard or the, uh, the Air Force dudes. And basically I wanted to be a PJ because of the, that one scene and that one mission, that perfect storm mission. Um, 12 years doing it, never quite got the perfect storm mission. But uh, yeah, I was very much pulled to that career field because of the water and because of the, the, um, the I guess the attrition rate. My ego was like, well, I want to do the hardest thing possible. And like, I want to prove my prove to my younger self that I was capable. But uh, initially, man, if I could go back and do it again, though, would have been an AST thousand times over. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to just touch on that ego thing. I never had somebody break it down that way, but we've always said, oh, we wanted to see if we could do it. We wanted to see if we were capable of overcoming that challenge. But in another very real sense, that kind of is what it is. It's can I back up my ego? You know, maybe maybe we're drawn to the function, right? Like the, the concept of that others may live or so others may live. Like the mission itself really resonates deep within us or it stirs something in our developing, you know, 18 year old brains. That's like, well, this is like perfectly suited for my skills, my strengths, my talents, my work ethic, my discipline. And I think ultimately those who are at least what I have found, those that are successful, there was this very underlying like it was like we, we needed to prove that to ourselves that we were capable of it. And like we, we part of us knew all along that we were going to be successful and we were going to make it through our programs. And then it was like, like part of us needed that validation at a young age. I know I did anyway. Like I, I very much grew up. I wasn't supported a lot by like my friends and family and like decisions that I had made. So I was very autonomous at a very young age. And then for me choosing this, this life path that was so different than anything that my influences have, had ever, had ever chosen. It was like, okay, well, I need to prove this to, to myself. I don't care about anybody else. I care about myself and just validated what I already knew. So mm. that's my yeah, heavy philosophy. So early in the morning, I'm, I'm relating to this a lot. And do you think a lot of people are actually doing this as a lack of self-esteem? doing these say navy seal router all these challenging difficulties that's a really interesting question and i don't know that there would ever be a a a realistic way to to get an honest answer from people i don't think that you can survive those kind of kinds of programs trying to boost your self-esteem i think they I'm sure, you know, at AST school, the instructors are very skilled as they are in pararescue school or Navy SEAL training where they can, they, they individualize everybody at some point during the entire program. And like you are, you are singled out from your, your team. And I think when you're in those, when you're in those situations, being like, man, I hope, I hope I'm enough of a badass to survive this. I don't think that's going to actually get you through. I think there does need to be some pre-existing confidence and there needs to be like a trusting in your own ability and your own tenacity. And you won't get through it if you're just trying to like prove something to someone else. I don't think so. I think there needs to be like something there to begin with. Mm. Yeah. But the reason I ask is, you know, there's always those people that you've, you encounter in your life and they're so confident and not cocky, just confident. 
they seem content and they don't feel the need to prove themselves with these outrageous achievements because they're content. And a lot of times I look at those people in, let's say jealousy, because that's not who I am. I, I need that next big challenge. I'm never quite content with the achievement. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I carry the same emotion towards that. I'm very much jealous of people who are just content with, I hate, man, I'm going to use, I'm going to use a phrase that's, it's, I, I think it's, it's offensive. So I'm going to be offensive, but yes, like, um, um, I, I am not, I've never settled for mediocrity. I can't, I can't do that. And for some people, like that's enough. And like, I, I wish them well. I, that's not me, man. I, I cannot settle for mediocrity. It's always like, as far as I know, I only get one experience at this living thing. And like, man, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the most advantage of it as I possibly can. Cause there's a lot of fun to be had. And there's a lot of crazy stories that I want to be able to tell later in life or as they're happening. And I'm not one to, to just kind of sit back and be like, huh, man, I love working at Lowe's. Like, it's just amazing. Like I could retire out of here. Like and and who out of those people that crush Lowe's every day, nothing against that. It's, it's just, it's not who I am. So yeah. I'm, sounds like you're similar. No, I am. But my problem comes when I'm never feeling like I'm doing enough. It's like, I need, I could be doing more. And, and there's a weird thought in my head where I'm like, I'm going to die tomorrow. Tomorrow is my death and I need to do the most I can right now. Right. And it's, that's, that's where that jealousy comes into play when I'm looking at these other people that are content. I'm like, God damn, I wish I could just chill sometimes and be present and just enjoy the now. I've definitely learned to chill in my later years, man. Like uh, when I left the military, like I, I, I sought out a path of learning like yoga and meditation and breath work and a deeper connection to the sea and to the ocean and to my sports. And I found that maybe over the past like 10 years or so, my ability to just kind of chill and, and let what is kind of be enough. I have more moments like that than I do of like, man, I gotta be doing something. I have to be like, like eyes on the next goal. It's still there. It's that drive and that, that fire still burns, but I, I find I could be more judicial in, in where I apply that energy. And if I'm applying that energy to just chilling, I can chill pretty hard these days. Like I'm kind of like professional at chilling lately. Yeah, you seem to yeah. I try, yeah, thank you, yeah. You, you have a Matthew McConaughey vibe. <laughs> all right all right have you uh, <laughs> you read his book or heard his book no no Dude, you should it's great it's, it's full of wisdom you don't read the book listen to the audiobook because he narrates it um it, it's actually great he has a ton of pearls in there okay and yeah, uh, sure. yeah that's a that's a that's a solid dude man that's a guy who's in touch with like his his like masculinity his emotional state his artistry his his talent i got a lot of respect for that guy not to mention the more i speak with southerners the more i come to really get inspired by just the way they communicate they're mm. just so smooth they have every every word is like a they're spitting diamonds you know mm. it's like it's all motivational quotes almost but in a pure and just crisp way there's no fluff there's no bullshit it just oh you're inspired every time they talk in my opinion yeah it's like a like they open a box of southerner fortune cookies every day and they look for a way to inject that wisdom into any situation that's pretty yes. cool yes. i uh i grew up overseas i spent a majority of my life overseas and traveling and i've always been fascinated by language and the way that people especially uh different cultures especially ones who we all speak this especially people who speak the english language 
how we all use it differently and how we all can communicate differently. So like, for example, you have somebody in the South who has an expression for something that like maybe we're struggling to articulate or like an Australian person can describe a situation and you're like, whoa, like I never would have used the same language we speak to share the same experience or articulate a similar experience. I love language. I love the way people speak. I can't say that I've had a similar experience. Actually, that's not true. I have a buddy who's from like, Tennessee or something. And he's just, this guy just needs to talk for a living or write fortune cookies for his, his peers. Uh, it certainly is interesting how there's different in different languages. There's gaps. You can't express the same thought in one language oftentimes as in another, like, totally. in, like for myself, when I'm, I'm completely fluent in French, but there's certain things where I, I'm like, I need to say this in French because there's no way I can translate this and have the same impact or the same meaning as I could in French. What's cool though with being bilingual is you can use French words and just translate them in English and pretend like it's an English word. And people are like, what's that word? And you're like, you don't know the definition of that word. And you just describe it, what it means in French. Mm. And they're like, wow, you're really smart. And you're like, yeah, I read the dictionary a lot, but really it's just not an English word. Break a metal sweat too. (laughs) Did you grow up learning both languages simultaneously? kind of english a little like later but oh really so french was your first language yeah i think i was like six to six seven or eight or something when i started doing the whole english thing that's awesome yeah took it took a while to get away from the whole french accent one two three all dough hey you want to come over and have a bonfire over Mm. at my place and we'll have a beer the beers cost six dollars fifty would you like to purchase one on your way here yeah yeah that's cool dude yeah. All right. This is a Rusk Swimmer Mindset Podcast. We need to talk about special ops type stuff and the training that's involved in that. So pipeline, when did you go through your pipeline for PJ? Man, I enlisted January 25th of 2000 and un. 2000 and un. Okay. Uh, yeah. 2001 for those non-French speakers out there. Right. So, well, one thing I, th- I found interesting with the pipeline, they've really changed it now to... Mm assessing people's behaviors and their teamwork abilities, their skills as far as communicating and will they be a good fit in the team? And I know it wasn't quite like that before until Mm. just fairly recently in in the years. Um, But what was your experience like as far as the instruction, the instructors and what were they looking at in candidates? Now, remember, this is pre September 11th. So before then, before the whole world completely shifted and the special operations uh, career fields like expanded with people. At that time, it was like a really select group of, it's, not, it's still a very select group of people. So at the time, the, the, the training was, was really pretty harsh, man. Like they held up that 90% attrition rate. Um, and it was just raw, man. It was trial by fire. It was like every survive, every evolution, make it through the day, survive the next day, do that day after day after day. And then maybe you graduate from indoc, the, the 12 or the 10 week, uh, selection phase. And then from there, maybe you survive the next two years as you go through all your specialty training, combat dive school, uh, airborne free fall school, paramedic, um, you know, and then putting it all together in a six month, like, uh, they call it the apprentice course. Um, so like back then it was, uh, and, and I'm sure it's the same now the, the end result is to, is to identify candidates who will not only thrive and survive as they are learning the skills, the hard skills to become pararescuemen, but then also that will thrive in the career field and actually show up and perform their assigned duties quickly and efficiently when the call comes. 
Um, so, I mean, I'm sure we could go through a thousand stories of, of moments where, you know, I was tested as an individual. I was, my team was tested where I had like these, these aha moments and, and turning points that I knew I was going to be successful or I doubted myself. Um, but well, let's, let's, let's have yeah. some specifics here. People want to know specifics. Totally. So what was, let's go with your breaking point. Or your yeah. biggest challenge, say, in the pipeline? My biggest challenge, hands down, bro, I am not a creature of the land. If you if you were like, hey, Matt, I, I give you an option. You can either run 10 miles or you can swim freestyle in 50-degree water with no wetsuit for 10 miles. I'd be like, yeah, swim. Oh, God, yeah, thousand times over. I uh, I showed up, and the standard at the time was, was seven-minute miles or faster, with the final evaluation being a six-mile run in 42 minutes or less. That's really difficult for me. I did not grow up a runner. I'm not built like a runner. I like pound the earth into submission. And for me, it was like every morning when it would be like forming up to go for our run, whatever it was for the day, I would be like sweaty. I'd have like the nervous peas. I'd be like running into the tree line and like sprinkling a few drops here and run back. Oh, I got to pee again. I'd run back. And it was just like pure survival mode and absolute misery with every step. And they were like, we're running and like the instructors would like, I'd have to go up front by them or I'd somehow end up there to like keep up with them. And then they're singing, they're running so fast and they're singing Jody's and I'm like trying to keep up and I'm next to them like, and that's like all that I can contribute to the Jody and the instructors just like look at me and then the whole team, like we end up just getting dropped and oh, Scar doesn't want to sing. Oh, he's too good for his team. And like just getting singled out and like, you know, for 30 minutes, we're just getting smoked. And my meanwhile, my brain's like, oh God, we're still have to run after this. And then like we would run to the pool and it would just be like, oh, thank God. But simultaneously, as we like transitioned into the pool, that's when all these star gazelles and antelope would start to sweat and they'd be all like panicky and like they'd be sitting on the pool deck, like shaking. And I'd just kind of be sitting there like humming Bob Marley, just like, oh, thank God we're back in the pool. Like, my goodness, like this doesn't hurt at all. You hold my breath, swim underwater, do all, <laughs> all day. Yeah. But like, man, running was my demon, bro. But um, I somehow, I somehow squeaked by. And I think I did my final evaluation run with like like 12 seconds to spare. So, I mean, I'm kind of a kind of was the real deal out on that track. It's fun to watch all those candidates that there's always that one thing that's super challenging for you. And you yeah. squeak by to the bare minimum, like just past the finish line with a couple seconds. And that includes like in the rescue swimmer program. I think some actually, unfortunately, that person failed out like near the end, but could have made it. Uh, but yeah, he was coming in at the swim. So like it's a 500 meter swim and 12 minutes, which yeah, you should be able to knock that out pretty easily. Uh, in my opinion, if you're a swimmer, but he's yeah. coming in at like 1150 or something. Hmm. Like, oh, bro. Um, yeah, dude, I love that you mentioned the P thing too, which I totally forgot about, but yeah, those nervous P's where you're just so, so nervous of the next obstacle or the next challenge to come. You just That's have like, that little droplet and you're like, I just peed myself a little bit. Nobody it's just knows, a, a, a little bit came out. Little, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I'm, I'm going to sweat so much anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, it's it's not pee. It's totally yeah. not pee. I but yeah. You peed. Leave me alone. I don't get out. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was the hardest part for me. And then, so that was that was an indoc. And then once I graduated indoc, um, it was like, they were talking about like sending guys straight to, to the combat dive school. And uh, I didn't have a slot at the first, like the first group of guys that went. And I was like, like, 
like what? I'm like, I'm ready, right? I can pass the run. That's all I'm worried about at this stupid school is passing the run. So I went and like talked to the instructors. I was like, I was like, please, like, can I go? Like, you're sending all these these star-studded athletes down. Like, I really think I'm gonna perform well. Like, can I get can I get a slot to dive school right now? And they all the instructors all came together and somehow like managed to find me a find me a spot. And it was like, it's like, you go down there, I swear, if you fail, you come back here, like, you're not getting another shot. Like, you're going to get booted from the program. Like, we're sending you down here right now, like, go. And I was like, oh, yes, all right. Go down to dive, go down to dive school. And like, all these other cats that were just like pure rock stars at Indoc, they all failed out. I ended up getting the honor graduate of dive school. And I went back, to, went back with my little, my little combat diver bubble and my honor graduate plaque and went to the schoolhouse and went to the instructors and said, like, oh yeah, yeah, who else are, uh, I graduated? And they're like, oh yeah, cool. And like, just smoked me for like two hours straight. And they were after, they're like, yeah, good job. I was like, okay, cool. So, um, and then after that, it was good. How, how does that work as far as you're saying you, you do well in the pipeline and then you're trying to get a slot into dive school, but why are you going back? You go back to those instructors that were at the pipeline? So back in the day, and I think still, I think it's still how it works is you, you go to Indoc and then from Indoc, you go to the combat dive school. Once you pass the combat dive school, you then PCS to, um, to another base in New Mexico. And then from there you go TDY to all of your different schools. But until you, until you pass dive school, that's like the, it's like Indoc part two. It's really challenging. It's kind of like the next excuse me, the next selection course until you've proven that they don't invest the money to, to PCS you. So that's why you go back for like a week and you're just like, wait, out processing, doing the whole military PCS thing. Um, but you're just like, yeah, but you got a little, you know, your chest is out a little bit more. You got a little more pep in your step. You grow your hair a little bit longer cause you're now a combat diver. And, uh, yeah, but then you're, you're treated differently, but you don't go back and like attend the program. You're a grad at that point. And all the other, all the kids going through were like looking at you. And then you get to the next base where you're like, you start over again while all the senior class guys are getting ready to class up or they just finished paramedic or they're in the apprentice course. And they just, you know, oh, these guys are going to be PJs in two weeks, hang your head in shame, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it's like this constant process of like getting like a, a, a step or two up the ladder and then just getting kicked square in the chest back to the beginning. So it's that for um, it's that for a number of years, man. Like when you when you finally put your hat on and you go to your team, it's the same thing, man. You're back at the beginning. You do your upgrade training. You you get deployable. You do your first deployment. You're at the bottom. You finish your first deployment. You come back and you're like maybe a little rung higher. And then it's just I'm sure the ASTs have a similar career progression where you're like always seeking advancement, refining your skills. Um, you know, becoming a fixed wing team leader, a helicopter team leader, a dive supervisor, uh, um, you know, going to JSOC. There's like a whole different, uh, there's, there's all these different avenues that you can explore, but proving yourself is sort of the, the, the root of all of them. Making yourself seem worthy to your peers is like a day-to-day thing. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how the PJ duties have a wide array of possibility as far as like what you can do swimmers i'm not saying there's not a lot of different venues you can go but i'd say it's definitely more limited than everything you guys can do there's so many so many ways to like kill yourself as a pj like there you you, you're dangerous in so many different ways that's uh yeah but it's it's so it's it's fun i want to get into like a more specific mission thing after uh we talk about the the selection a little bit more but that said I want to talk about like dropouts a little bit, which is not something we've talked about too, too much on the podcast, but 
I want to like, I want to hear some of the, the maybe humorous dropout stories that you recall. Cause you, when you were talking about the running, it reminded me of a specific story. I recall where this guy was a stud. We're running, we're doing like a two mile run. I think it's like week two. So it's still very challenging and he's, he's crushing it. He, I think it was a second or third time through the school, but he's doing really well this time. And we're doing this run. He's like in the front of the pack, more or less. And I'm there with him just jogging and more or less in formation and just jogging. Some people were chatting and this guy just goes out of, out of the blue. He was really quiet and out of nowhere he goes, well, it's about time I hit the old dusty trail and just turns around and starts running the opposite way back. He was not out of breath at all. Just starts running back to base. And he, he basically quit that day. He's like, yeah, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And we were like, that was the coolest way. That is pretty <laughs> boss, man. That's like, I'm going out on only my terms whatsoever. <laughs> That's amazing. And we kept saying that all throughout the school. It was kind of like our quote, our motto it was like, well, it's about time I hit the old dust. <laughs> <laughs> man, so. I, I never got to witness anything quite as awesome as that, but we did have, there was, there was two, like we used to call them like quitting periods. Guys would quit in the pool um, or they would quit in the morning before the training day even started. So it was either under times of like extreme duress where like, I mean, you'd see it, right? Like guys would be lined up on the edge of the pool and maybe the exercise we're doing. So we do something called like underwaters where you 25 meter free uh, underwater down freestyle back. And it's on like a time limit. They'd get down to like, the whole cycle would get down to sometimes like a minute, a minute 15, like to the point where you swim back, you touch the wall and you have like five seconds before you're 25 meters back underwater again. And you would see guys like that's where like it was all on the facial expressions, right? The instructors are in the pool and they're harassing and splashing and yelling. The deck man is up and he's like looking at his watch and you like get the, there's a there's a saying it's called like you count off by like one two three four so this is this there's another podcast it's called like one's ready and it comes from that it's like you're a one okay one's ready and like so you hear that that cue like one's ready and that's like oh god and dudes would just be like you'd hear the go from the instructor and they would just be like nope and they just hop out of the pool go ring the bell blow the horn and that was it or like they'd be singled out and the whole team would just kind of like sit on the sidelines and be like oh we're just gonna quit. Early on, it was like when guys would quit, it was it was emotional because like you recognize the the severity of what you're trying to overcome, which is surviving this program as the as the course progressed and like you get deeper into it and like you start whittling guys like, you know, dudes are dropping like 10 a day after that. It, it almost for me anyway, it became like uh, it was empowering. Like it was like Highlander. We like cuts the head off and they like quicken, like suck his soul out. Like every time guys would quit, it would, it would make me, it would reinforce my own confidence and my own belief. Like, no, I'm going to get through this. Like this guy was an absolute beast and he was a collegiate swimmer and you know, like a chiseled Greek Adonis. Like he, like he succumbed to his own demons in this pool, but I didn't. Like I would add that to like the little victories column in my life. Like, well, well, like, okay, I survived today. This cat didn't. And like, I would, I would use that as my own fuel when I needed it. It was like, if I was having a challenging moment, I'd be like, no, like it's not, I'm not going to give any of these guys my energy. I'm going to survive this iteration. I'm going to get through this and then I'll deal with the rest of it later. But like, I'm here now I'm in this flow, like I'm going to survive. So, um, 
I, I, I learned a lot of lessons from people who quit. Um, but typically when they quit, man, it was like, that was it. I, I was done with you. Like I, if you were, if I saw you in the barracks or something, it was like, Nope, I'm not gonna, I, I've already sucked your energy out. And like, that's, that's <laughs> so what kind yeah. of lessons did you learn from people who quit <clears throat> that everybody has like a breaking point and that you can't ever like you can't sense that in somebody like you just, you just never know that you can never look at a person and be like that person. It, you can't judge somebody ever. Like it just, it taught me that like people are their own complex set of emotions and thoughts and experiences and memories and history. And like, there's no way to predict how somebody will respond to a situation. Like we can, we can create environments that test people and challenge people but it's very difficult to predict like this person's background or this person's life experience will ensure either success or failure. The human brain is like a fascinating, the most incredible, powerful computer, superhuman. I guess it's not superhuman if it's any human. It's amazing. And like, it's just, uh, I, I loved seeing what people were capable of. It was inspiring and it was also like, it, it also motivated me to, to, to survive and persevere. See, as far as the, the people quitting thing, though, goes, for me, it was the exact opposite in the timeline of things. As in, at first, for the first, I'd say, week to three weeks, I thought exactly that. I was like, ah, who are you? It's like, well, you had no business being here. Like, I'm, this, this does solidify that I should be here. You just never belonged here. I don't care about you. And this means, like, this boosts my own ego up and this boosts my confidence that I'm doing doing well but as far as progressing in that rescue swimmer school i would get a heartbreak because after a while for us it was like everyone dropped out first three weeks but then we stuck with the same group for the following three months or three and some change months until the very last test and then half the class failed again and that was like to me that was a heartbreak it wasn't it wasn't a boost of of anything i, I was just saddened because i wanted like the entire team to make it through of course yeah i also and it sounds a little bit different if people are failing like there's obviously a, a a greater level of empathy for people who fail it's the people that just like give up on themselves and that's and that's that's their own decision like we can't judge somebody like oh you chose to not be here like you know you're an asshole but it's it's also for me it was like if they didn't make it through, I didn't have the energy to be empathetic towards them. At that point, I was like, I'm so focused on my own goal that like, I don't have the time and energy to console you for your decision that you made. I'm consoling myself because I need to survive tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. I empathize for you and that must be a challenging decision that you have to live with for the rest of your life. You know, in uh, Dodgeball, when Lance Armstrong was like, well, if nobody ever quit, they wouldn't have anything to regret for the rest of their life. That movie came out in like, you know, the, that those earlier days. And I would always tell that to people, um, like, don't quit, like, give it your all. If it's not for you, it's not for you. But like, it's, it's not for everyone. And most people go in with very high hopes and expectations and most people don't make it. So mm. The other thing we've talked about a lot on the podcast, and it seems a similarity in a lot of different Navy SEALs, PJ selection, the people that were going in with the mentality of, I know I'm going to make it, ended up not making it. And the people that were like, yeah, I don't know, we'll see what happens. It's We always hear the same thing as far as the mindset goes of taking it a day at a time. But mm -hmm. those people that were kind of just taking it a day at a time and thinking, 
I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't guarantee anything. They yeah. ended up making it. And that's kind of interesting. That is interesting. I would love to, to interview more people like later in the career if they had that mindset. Um, I had a guy, a buddy of mine, I won't name his name. Um, he, so when you used to, if you used to quit in the morning, you used to have to show up in your blues, like your service dress. And uh, you, you just couldn't quit in your PT shorts. You had to get dressed up to go quit and make a big production out of it. Oh my God. And, uh, walk, walked out one morning and this, this guy, very close friend of mine, um, was in his blues and it was like, like what are you doing, dude? And he's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think it's for me. I, I, I think I need to be done. I'm not gonna graduate, I can't make it. And like me and this other, this other guy were like, we, we kind of talked him off the ledge and was like, dude, go, go get changed, man. Meet us over at the schoolhouse. Like we'll tell the instructors you had like a, a sick call appointment or something, like get out of here. Like no one's gonna let you quit. But he was in his blues, man. He was ready to go. And, uh, and this, this dude like went on to become one of the most like operationally successful PJs like of all time. Like this guy is just, I mean, yeah, he's, he ultimately gave so much to the career field and to others. You know, he's rescued hundreds of people in, in, in crazy situations. And it's just to think that like he was at that crossroads and, somehow was able to channel that energy to be fuel for his success. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. How, how was he in training after that day? He was, yeah, couldn't tell, man. He was a stud. It was almost like we just, we didn't talk about it after that. It's like once, I think once he, once he put on that, that uniform and made the decision that he was going to go and quit, I think that gave him enough like enough of a scare, like enough regret as he was like maybe mulling over his decision that when he got back into training, I almost think it was like rejuvenating for him. And it was like, like, no, okay, I, I can persevere. And this was late. This is like week eight, man. He had like maybe two weeks left, but that's obviously when everything's the most challenging and the most difficult. So. Yeah. Cause at that point it almost feels like overtime or like it's summer school or it, you're go, you you in your mind you you already left and now you're back and I think that just gives you that fresh perspective of ah oh, feels good to be back here actually yeah exactly like well I'm actually thankful to be enduring this like I couldn't imagine the alternative of like waiting to be reclassed into a different career field and like sort of being uh, just being mediocre again maybe aside from the whole taking a day by day because we've reiterated that a thousand times on the show did you have any specific mindset tricks to survive the, the hardships of it? Absolutely, and that's a great question. So man, you, uh, you hit it pretty heavy in your book talking about visualization, and I think that for me was the most promising and, and prevalent practice that I would do where I would find myself being anxious for a particular evolution. Usually it involved wearing running shoes and chasing an instructor for many, many miles. I would find myself anxious about that. And I was living in fear of what could happen. So what I started to do pretty early on was, was practice like a visualization technique where I would, I would just go to the latter half of the run when like my endorphins kicked in and I was able to like stride it out and run a little bit faster. And like I could, I could see myself passing the finish line successfully and like I could feel it in my body and I would like I would lay in bed and like that would be what I would play over and over again is just like knowing that I could get through that challenging iteration for the next day focusing on the things that I could control I can control like my my gait what I had for breakfast how much water I had like how um like 
like motivated I could be like I can muster false motivation and like that was you know I would I would tap into those things to get me through the challenging iterations so visualization was one something else I would do I don't know that I've ever actually told anybody that would do this I would make these like little deals with myself where it would be like uh like, all right, dude, you, if you make it through, through this experience or your, you, whatever, whatever it was ahead of me, like, okay, if I make it through this pool session and I, I do it with a smile on my face and motivated and I like lift up the team and I show everybody that like, you know, I deserve to be here and I'm a rock star. Like I would, I would find clever ways to like reward myself for those or I would all I would convince myself that that was like me making like a deal with like the universe of like hey I showed you like I I did this so like next time if I need something like you got my back like help me through it. It was like this weird psychological like tug of war of of battling the the brain that says I'm out of my league I don't belong here and the other part of me that's like no I think I have a chance and I I think I will be successful here. It was like trying to get the two to like harmonize and link up. It was just playing with creative ways to do it. What kind of rewards were you, would you give yourself? Hey, by the way, sorry. Um, that book is Cody's book. I'm Vince. There's oh, uh, oh. two swimmers on this podcast. And well, Cody Cody wrote the book. So Risk Swimmer Mindset, if you haven't read it, check it out. Here are uh, great reviews. I've read it too. Read Cody's book. I actually gave it to my uh, my 13-year-old son who's considering becoming an AST. I was like, hey, man, read this book. So he, uh, he threw some knowledge at me the other day from it. And I was like, I've been saying that stuff since you were born. Get out of here. You know? <laughs> You don't quote Cody's book to me. <laughs> so yeah, so visuals, visualization and like playing to my strengths. I would always like reinforce my strengths and like be like, well, no, like I, you know, most people quit in the pool. You're never going to quit there. Like you're going to survive. You're going to be, you know, you're, you're, you're ready. You're prepared. But I, for me, it was like, I could not get too far into the future. If I started to think like about the end of the week when it's only Monday, I would, I would spiral into this like negative state of mind and I would have so much self doubt. If I focused on what I was doing, when I was doing it, I found that I could get into that, that like flow state, state of mind. And I had a couple other little tricks too. Like, um, when we would do pool iterations or, you know, water confidence, any opportunity that I had to breathe above the surface and I would stick and I would be underwater. I would always like hum, like I would make like the like drown proofing, for example. So like your hands and feet are tied, you jump into a pool, you exhale to sink to the bottom. When I would exhale, I would like go like, mm, I would always make this like humming vibrational sound, which is pretty interesting because it's, it's very similar to in yoga when people use the, the ohm sound, the vibration yeah. actually can like, it like, it stimulates your like parasympathetic system and like calms you down. So I would, I would practice that and I would find that I could like really calm myself, especially on underwater swims where we would do the 25 meter underwater or 50 meter underwater and then have to swim on the surface. As I was exhaling, it was always, and I would like vibrate and it just like, it, it brought me so much focus and presence and calmed everything down. And it was really helpful for me. If I did it on a run, it didn't work, but it worked in the pool. So I was like, my... That's my little trick. That sounds awesome. I actually want to, you really inspire me. I want to go do some, uh, some bobbing right now and, and do that. Cause it sounds spiritual. 
it is spiritual and it's relaxing and it's like, it's, it's rooted in science. And it also is like rooted in like deep spiritualism from, you know, these thousands of year old practices of like meditation, like Tibetan throat chanting. It's That's like what the I same was thinking. Thing. I was yeah, thinking man. that. Yeah. yeah, man. So you're underwater, like, but it's a little, you know, more bubbly sounding. I listen um, but, to that when I climb. I love yeah. that. It's yeah. so good. So try, try mirroring it when you have to like control your exhalations. It, for me, it was really, uh, it was really helpful in, in challenging moments of extreme hypoxia. I wonder if that pissed off or annoyed your other teammates though. Cause I, I you can kind of hear that underwater. You can kind of hear it. Maybe. I don't know. Usually the instructors would have like a mega or like a, an underwater speaker and it would just be like, all right, quit, scholar, quit. You're, gonna, you're never going to make it. And you would just have to like drown out their little white noise. So I don't, I don't know that my own humming ever, nobody ever mentioned it, but maybe. In the new Rescue Swimmer Pool, they had like sound effects that are completely non-applicable to any kind of Rescue Swimmer duties, hopefully. Because at, at one point, they, they had like gunfire. <laughs> we were like, why are we going to get shot as Rescue Swimmers? Like, why are they shooting at us? We're underwater. They're like lighting off these cannons. And we're like, what? What is happening over there? Like, what? Why? <laughs> Dude, when I was uh, when I was in like survival school, you know, they you get you get rolled up and they put you as a as a prisoner of war. You're like made to sleep and whatever, you know, the whole deal. But they would play uh, they would play Yoko Ono, oh, no. and just just her like yodeling over and over again. Which I don't know if you've ever heard Yoko Ono's like That's the worst voice ever. It's so bad. So you're sitting there, and I always thought it was hilarious. Like guys are like oh freaking out, like non PJ students, like other people who are in the survival school. Then I would just laugh, be like, man, I wonder if Yoko Ono, if she ever found out how pissed off she would be. But, uh, yeah. Do you ever see the the video clip? I want to say it's John Lennon and uh, not Buddy Holly because that's a different era. It, uh, black phenomenal musician playing the guitar. They're both there. It's like two legends jamming out together. And for some reason, <clears throat> Yoko's there and she just needs to have her own you know day in the spotlight and out of nowhere they're they're just jamming and it's like two legends it's a great song you're jamming out and then out of nowhere yoko comes in like that's it man yeah. <laughs> you see the other guy just like looking at john lennon like why is this why are you allowing this to happen yeah like, this is she my would, place but can we not have her around right now could we yeah, not? she with you is this yeah. you're responsible for this just yeah. like so pissed off that's so <laughs> yeah Actually, the more I think about it, like in this moment, I really dislike what uh, what Yoko Ono stands for. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> let's just make this podcast about Yoko Ono. Taco Yoko Ono, yeah, mindset <laughs> training. Don't be Yoko. Yeah. Um, last question regarding the training. What's what's a very specific and unique challenge in the pipeline that you recall? Because in re in rescue swimmer school, I would say the two the two ones that we always build up and they're fairly unique is we do a lot of buddy towing, right? We're always because that's what a rescue swimmer is. is pulling and rescuing somebody out of the water. So you need to be able to do that. But the other one is buddy brick, right? So both go down and I think, you know, this drill, but you both go down. You can only push the brick one, two hands are on it. And then one person can go up, take a breath, come back down. So on, you push that brick. That's pretty unique. I think to rescue swimmer school, I know other programs might do it. Um, what's one that you recall as being very memorable in the PJ selection process? So in the, in the selection course in doc, our you know, version, not just in doc, anything to be honest. Yeah. All the okay. Well, I, I can go through all the different schools. So for, for in doc, the, the most significant evolution is called buddy breathing, which is where you have you and your buddy are connected wrist to wrist and you're sharing a snorkel 
and it's like you pass the snorkel to your buddy. Simultaneously, you have you know this massive meat house of an instructor trying to take your snorkel, trying to block your air source, pushing you down to the bottom of the pool, trying to separate you. You lose your air source or you lose your buddy, you fail the evolution. And these instructors really do their best to try and have both happen. Um, the way to be successful in that drill is to always prioritize your buddy over your own. If you're like kicking, trying to get up and tread water so that you can get out and get a snag of that air source and you're hogging it, you're not thinking of your, of your buddy. If you show some calm, help your buddy. You do the kicking. You drive and you, you, uh, you know, egg beater and you shove him up on the surface to get that snorkel out into the, into the air. He gets a good breath and he reciprocates it for you. The instructors recognize it and they know that you're working together to achieve a common goal and you ultimately will be successful. So that's, that's the indoc one is, is buddy breathing. That's what gets a lot of people. It's a challenging drill. The instructors make it challenging. You know, they, they take breaths. They can take up to two breaths. So you get the snorkel, you clear it, you go to inhale, there's nothing there. Get that sucker right back. You get pushed to the bottom of the pool, alligator rolled. It's a long process. So that's, that's the one at INDOC. Um, dive school, the combat diver course, there's an evolution called one man confidence, which is a very challenging uh, evolution that lasts like 20 to 30 minutes. And that's you underwater. It might be different now. It might be all like CBT virtual training. But when I went through, when it was hard, it was a blacked out mask. Um, and, and, and you just, an instructor would do everything and anything to you. Turn your air off, rip it around you, kick you into the, in the ribs, smash you into the side of the pool, spin you upside down, all sorts of nonsense. And whenever the violent motion ceases, that's when you turn your air on, back off quarter turn, trace regular it out. You need to go through this whole, this whole sequence of self-correction. It's in the entire pararescue program, the closest I ever came to losing consciousness in the water was during one man confidence. And I went to dive school with like a six minute breath hold and like I was a rock star man and I got down there and I had this instructor that just swore nobody was going to pass his one man uh, evolution for that day and uh, and I got through it man and like when I finally the, the, the exercise culminates when the instructor ties an unrecoverable air source it's called a whammy knot and at that point you have to ditch your tanks in this like specific uh, specific order then you have to find your regulator with a blacked out mask, you're feeling everywhere. And then you have to free flow air into your mouth and get a breath. So I went through this process and I was like, and at any given time, you can just give a little out of air and it'll shove a regulator in your mouth. And I just remember going through it and was like, I, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I was like, I'm not gonna give it out of air. I'm not gonna like, if I go out, I'm gonna go out on my terms. I'm gonna hit the old dusty trail and I'm just gonna pass out. And um, yeah, I ended up like surviving the iteration and like getting that breath. It was a best breath of air I've ever had in my life. I know a lot of people can't be like, man, the best breath I ever took was back in like Poughkeepsie 1994. Like you just can't <laughs> quite get there. Uh, but that was my, my absolute favorite breath. Um, and then like when you go to airborne, the biggest challenge is dealing with like the conventional army. That's just like, we want to talk about a mindset. Like that was probably like the hardest school. Cause you go from this like like really progressive, independent, autonomous thinking to getting into like the army way of doing things. Airborne school could be taught to a, a PJ candidate over like a good long weekend. Like that's all you really need, but you're there for three weeks and that's like a legacy thing. That's really challenging. Um, free fall school is amazing. You learn how to skydive. That's like, who doesn't love that? But then like you add, you add things to it, like jumping at night, jumping with other people, having a rucksack and a weapon, landing at night. You've never jumped out of an airplane 
uh, at, at 15, you know, 13,000 feet until three days ago. Now you're doing it at night with a rucksack on. And so the, the progression and the pace of that school can be a little intimidating. Um, let's see what else we have. We got Yoko Ono at survival school. And then, uh, and then it's like you, you put it all together. Uh, or no, excuse me, you do uh, your EMT basic and paramedic. That's, I mean, you're becoming a nationally registered paramedic in like six months. That's a two-year program for a civilian. You do it in six months and you spend the majority of your time in the front leaning rest. So like those are long days. Um, and at that point, it's, it's strictly like didactics. You're, you're studying, you're learning, you're learning like all these really advanced medical procedures and new algorithms and like all this stuff. And still you have to maintain your physical fitness, your readiness, all that stuff. Um, and then you put it all together in a six month course called the apprentice course where you do, um, mountain rescue, rope rescue, land navigation, tactics, uh, water ops with like helicopters and airplanes and jumping into the water and, um, weapons and tactics. And then you put it all together for this like three week period where you just run live missions. Like you're a pararescueman for, and then when it's finished, you put on your hat and then you go back, you go to your first team and start all over again at the beginning. But that's the, that's the pipeline in a really condensed nutshell. Sweet. Yeah. Let's get into the mission then. Um, Fired but, up. but that said, the snorkel drill that you started this off with, uh, was something that we dove quite into with Tyler Ganzel on, I think it was episode 59. And he was a rescue swimmer that ended up going PJ, never popped at any point in rescue swimmer school, but did pop in that section. It was his first time and last time, but he popped during that whole snorkel exchange drill. And yeah. that was a cool one because he, he went into the men mental process and, and what happened there. Um, it was, it was a good story. And it goes to show that there's different challenging uh, different challenges in, in every type of, of program, right? Totally. They, they'll always find something. There's always something up there that'll mess with everybody at some point. It yeah. could be, yeah, it could be holding a snorkel. It could be tying up your running shoes and going to pee in the tree line. So we, we've had a, a PJ or two on now. And hey, by the way, we, we have been on the, the Ones Ready podcast when you mentioned you? that earlier. Yeah. yeah. Me and Cody were on it. Um, nice. We got interviewed. Yeah, they, they do a good job. I, I didn't realize they had so many hosts though like we were like we, we log into the zoom call and there's like five other people there we're like well, jesus there's there's pjs all around me <laughs> just like like a staff meeting <laughs> yeah we're, we're surrounded <laughs> yeah yeah it was fun well that's well that's where that name comes from the ones ready that's like the like when you hear that it's like supposed to shen, send that little shiver up your spine like uh, now yeah. i'm not ready but <laughs> so now i got the backstory for that yeah um yeah so let's let's get into a oh, hold on the other thing you mentioned a six minute breath hold you did that in what your the selection phase? Mm -hmm. Whoa! Well, yeah. why why would you have to do that? Or did was that? It was just my own my own like practice. Like I was I used to spend a lot of time like on my own just training different apnea practices. That's yeah. for most people when they go through indoc. It, that's the most challenging for the majority of candidates is that when you're in the pool, the major the the experience is spent mostly hypoxic. So if you can get comfortable working with an oxygen deficit, you know, you work your O2 tables, your CO2 tables, typically, you know, similar to what a free diver would use to enhance uh, his or her breath hold. Um, it's just, it gives you that little extra bit of confidence. You're like, oh no, I got this. Like, yeah, okay. I've only taken three breaths, but they were three really good breaths. And now I feel oxygenated, I'm calm and I can survive. So I would do a lot of like my own individual breath work. And a lot of that was, was static apnea. You know, yep. I, would, I would do, um, I would do this O2 tables, the CO2 tables. And I would just sit like in my, in my barracks, like at night and, 
Um, you know, I, I tape all my, my gear, get it prepped and ready. And then I say at night, it's like at like six o'clock in the evening as I'm getting ready to go to bed. Um, and like that, would just, I would just do some breath work, some breath holds. And uh, yeah, I had a six minute breath hold and nice. it just felt, felt pretty good going into it. I'm pretty close to that now. I try and I, I do underwater still. Like I, I do a lot of, you know, my, uh, my goal last year was to actually go and ride Jaws on Maui, Piahi, really massive wave. So I spent a lot of time revisiting a lot of my old practices uh just last last winter and doing a lot of breath hold training it was pretty nice. cool i was like i felt like a pj student again just you know 40 years old versus 18 years old yeah well yeah. shameless plug that's that's why we came out with that whole program we have one that's out called the hold your breath like a helicopter rescue swimmer mm. and it was combining that apnea the skills the co2 tables the stuff that you can do just sitting at home or walking around as well as breaking down the underwater form. So yeah. that's why we came out with that program because I was implementing that when I went through the program. I really think it gave me like that that's advantage and just the the skills as far as oxygenating yourself. Preparatory breathing is a huge one, right? Cuz yep. they give you limited time before you get to go underwater again. So breathing correctly, where you're putting that air, how you're taking that breath in, how long you're inhaling, how long you're exhaling, holding, all that shit why we came out with that program well that's Same important shit man teaching somebody to take a proper breath when they have the chance i always found was more carrying more weight in application than teaching somebody to hold their breath so it's like if i can teach you to retain what you've already brought in it has more value than like just hold what you got airborne so yeah. i think that's cool yeah important stuff yeah check it out at the rescue swimmer mindset.com enough with get the, there now. the plug yeah go get now. There now go now um so okay so now you're you're a pj we haven't really dissected a mission with any PJ. And were you, did you do much combat type of operations? Yes, that's the primary goal of, of that's the primary application of pararescuement is to utilize in combat. Okay. So the, the, the whole rescue swimmer, like perfect storm mission, that's, uh, that's sort of a rarity and seems to only uh, be prevalent amongst like the guard and reserve teams that have like an East coast or a West coast base. And they have like connections with the local coast guard or, um, you know, they have like an area of responsibility that might cover the Atlantic or the Pacific ocean. So for us, conventional active duty pararescue men, um, we are, we are seen as, uh, as, as combat combatants and forward operating medics and technical rescue specialists. And basically this Jack of all trades that when, um, when commanders like the Siege of Sodif uh, commanders or like the Sentaf guys started to see what capabilities we brought, they were like, oh man, like we need like some of these, we need some of these PJ guys coming out with us on operations or at least being on standby to respond to our operations. Right. If you're comfortable, could we break down the play-by-play -play of one of these missions and how it, from, from the starting point of how it, they kind of set it up, totally. how, like the, the, the pre-mission brief and then yeah, going into it. So I'll give you guys, I'll give you guys a really, a really good mission, a really, uh, really solid, crazy. Uh, the thing that you that you find with with PJ missions is uh, they they can vary from super benign and vanilla to the most like crazy. Like, why are we not making movies about this stuff? So, so you are you're you're assigned to a stateside team. So, say for example, you're at the uh, 48th Rescue Squadron in Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson. So, your primary unit is the 48th. Now, you are assigned a deployment rotation based off of whatever conflict is present at the time. That could be 
Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, New Dawn, you know, uh, Horn of Africa type operations. And wherever you fit into that deployment cycle is where your team bases their pre-deployment training, deployment cycle, and reconstitution up. So maybe let's call it uh, early to mid-2000s um, when OEF kind of, because if, if you recall, there was the initial surge into Afghanistan, then it kind of became like a bit of a, a back burner while we focused on Iraq. And then it was like, oh, wait a minute, we have this other festering you know, blister in Afghanistan that needs attention. So let's put more of our energy back to Afghanistan. So back when there was that turn, maybe like 2006, seven to maybe like 10, 11, 2010, 11, were some of the most violent and dynamic days in the uh, in the Afghani conflict. So you're a PJ, you know you're going to Afghanistan in three months. So you spend that three months doing all of your pre-deployment training, getting dialed in with your air crews, you know, weapons and tactics, uh, vehicle extrication, learning how to how to cut um, up armored vehicles, how to use lift bags, how to use a, a you know a concrete saw, how to parachute into high altitude type tight drop zones, vehicular tactics, weapons and tactics, how to shoot a 240, how to shoot a sniper rifle, how to like, and you're getting exposure to all these different things that you can conceptualize may be important during your, you know, your, your four to six month deployment. So you finally deploy, you know, you pack everything into a C-17, you and your team jump on the plane and you fly to Afghanistan via, you know, whatever route that you get there. You hit boots on the ground, you do a quick exchange with the team who you're relieving, and then you're getting all of your, your in-brief, um, and then you set up. And what that looks like is just dependent on who you're serving. Say you're in southern Afghanistan at like uh, Camp Bastion in Helmand or Kandahar Air, Air Base, um, and you're assigned to uh, two different platforms. You have a rotary wing asset and you have a fixed wing. And you also have access to different aircraft and different platforms, just mission dependent. But your primary ride to work is either going to be on this fixed wing asset or this rotary wing asset. And then whatever operations are going on. So say there's like a big push to um, a, big, a big assault into like a, a province or something where they expect like there's going to be a high uptick of casualties, you might forward stage with these helicopters at some combat outposts. And then from there, you just respond to nine lines. So that's like a CASAVAC, casualty evacuation type mission. And that's a lot of stuff where you're, you're just doing point of injury. So there's a, you know, a, a firefight going on and you have three guys who suffered gunshot wounds. And so you'll get the nine line, you'll jump on this helicopter in a very rapid succession, like, you know, like a five minute scramble from the call to your wheels up and airborne. Um, and you'll fly out to these, these spots that are sometimes pretty close because you're forward stage. You scoop up these, these three dudes and, you know, for the 15 minute flight back to the role one medical center, you're doing as much medical intervention as you possibly can. ABC, start IVs, dental decompression, tourniquets, like all these different things. You're trying to prioritize how can you... Prior, how can you save everyone's life with the injuries they have or, and, and keep them alive until you hand them off to the next higher level of care? So that, in those days, was a really common, a, a really common PJ mission. Like, guys were getting, like, literally, like, four, five hundred missions in the span of, like, a, a four to six month deployment. And you're just flying back to back to back to back. So that, it, and that's a very depleting and very draining operations tempo. And it's also really challenging in the sense that you're just like, you're showing up to these, these dudes and 
women's uh, worst day of their lives. Like you're just, you know, this guy just stepped on an IED and now he's a triple amputee and you're just flying to go rescue him. And you're doing this six times in one day. That sort of drains on you. What kind of stuff are you saying to these people as as far as I know, like the, the main importance is attending to them medically, but you still have to communicate with them. What are you telling them as far as like motivating? There's always this really overpowering sense of empathy and and reassurance because you have just basically clutched this person from the jaws of death and they've gone through an unfathomably heavy experience. You know, their vehicle was just blown up. I had a, I had a mission man where I went to a striker, this big up armored vehicle and the only survivor was the driver and eight other people in this vehicle died and he knew it. And I went, we went and got him. He had, you know, severe head injury, but he was conscious and he was on this like, like 30 second, uh, like amnesia loop where he would just, he would ask what happened and you'd be like, Hey bro, like you're, you're in a big explosion. My name's Matt. I'm a paraskeman. I'm here to help you. Like, we're going to get you to the next level of care. And he would start like shrieking like, Oh my God, I killed everyone. They're all dead. It's all my fault. And like, you recognize that like this guy is, you're compounding his already unfathomable suffering. So it's like, how do, how do you, you how do you recognize that and then also not make that same mistake again? So it's like, and this is just an anomaly of a, of a, of a situation where a guy had amnesia, but for him, it was like a lot of confidence, a lot of reassuring for people that maybe suffered like an individual event, like a gunshot wound or, um, you know, it was just this constant reassurance that they were like in the best hands possible. And most people, especially the ground units, they knew like who PJs were and they knew that if you were being picked up by a PJ, that like your chance of survival was really friggin' high. So you had a little bit of like, you had an expectation to uphold both as the person who you are rescuing, but also like a reputation as a, as a career field and as a service. Um, but man, it was like, it was overwhelming empathy and reassurance that you would do everything possible to, to get them through that experience. Um, and it was the same if they were, if they were conscious or not, like I would still talk to my, uh, unconscious patients. I would talk to deceased patients too. I would always, there was a video of me on the today show, uh, years ago. We had an, we had Richard Engel. He flew with us for a couple missions and like we had a guy and like, I didn't realize the camera was rolling and I, I put this guy in a body bag and I covered it with a flag and like, I, I had my hand on him for the whole flight and was just like, like talking to him, just like pure empathy and like just so much sorrow that, you know, somebody didn't know yet his wife or his mom or his kids didn't know that he was dead yet. And I did, that was always really challenging. How do you, cause one thing, I don't know if they taught you this back then, but one thing is you don't want to guarantee an outcome to any patient. Would you, of course not. Yeah. Yeah, of course not. It's, it's, you know, but you have a level of, of training, especially as, as a paramedic and some of the stuff that we were taught was maybe a little higher uh, level of care. Like sometimes maybe like what a PA would do in, in a hospital setting, we could do like in a combat setting. So you, you have a good sense of a patient's survival ability based off of like mechanism of injury, vital signs, uh, the, the next level of care they're going to receive. So you can usually speak intelligently to uh, like the receiving staff that of, of like their, their nature of injury. And then you'd have a, a pretty good idea if they were going to survive or not. Um, I mean, sometimes you'd get thrown a massive curveball, but yeah, you, you were never like, dude, trust me. You're like so good. 
it's just like, hey, like you're in the best care possible. Like we're doing everything you can. And you you would try and, um, you know, ease their suffering as best you could. And that was the biggest, the biggest, like the most frequent mission during those uh, OEF days. That's something I've kind of deviated from because I know they teach you never guarantee the outcome. But there's also been situations where I've attended to patients where they're really freaking out about something minor. And I, I know, like I've made my assessment pretty thorough and I feel fairly confident you are going to be totally fine. And I need to, you to just chill for a second. So sometimes I'll be like, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. Like, uh, yeah, just, typically we'd have guys like that. Um, it, I, I, the Afghan national army, the ANA guys who were basically like, none of them ever wanted to do any combat operations or do anything that like we were, or they, they would usually be embedded with like a special forces team or they would have a, an ODA guy assigned to them. If they knew that there was like a big op coming up, uh, like, and they didn't want to be a part of it, you'd see guys like shoot each other, like in the, in the thigh, like they, they would claim it was like an accident, but then there's like two, two bros and they like each have GSWs to like their legs. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're probably going to survive this because you like didn't hit any major, you know, structures or blood vessels and like, we're just going to, you know, kind of treat you. And I used to carry uh, lollipops and like uh, my little pony band-aids. So like if there was something where like I'd start an IV or I'd give somebody a shot, I would, I would like give them a lollipop. So I have a lot of like funny pictures of these like Afghani commandos like sucking on lollipops and I would just be like, hey. <laughs> so like that was like that was my little like kind of way of decompressing, I think, just from the like the experience of being in combat and being you know called to these disastrous events every single day. If you got something that where you could find a little bit of humor in it, you would uh, do your part and have my little pony band-aids but some u.s servicemen would shoot themselves in the lake no 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 the afghanis oh, okay, yeah not, not not the not the u.s yeah, dudes, okay. no. i never never saw an american guy uh or any coalition guys you know shoot themselves uh unnecessarily yeah that yeah. sounds like was that platoon where somebody like like in vietnam that i want to say with charlie sheen it was like the the black guy just takes a knife and stabs himself in the leg to go home. Yeah. 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 That was junior. Yeah. After, oh, yeah. after, after Sarge caught him with that, uh, putting mosquito repellent on his feet. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But, um, so you mentioned a lot of the, the PJ missions are, are Hollywood movie worthy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, all right. So, so you're on this, you're on this alert cycle and you're flying Kazvac, but you're also jointly tasked with, uh, the primary function of a Paris command is called personnel recovery. Now, what that entails is like looking or recovering uh, isolated personnel. So like if a pilot's flying behind enemy lines and gets shot with a surface to air missile and punches out and he's now Owen Wilson behind the enemy lines in Serbia, you then become the team that Gene Hackman kind of coordinates to, uh, to what go to go are we rescue. talking about? Uh, behind enemy lines. I haven't seen this. Yeah, I don't know. You're, you're, you're young. It's yeah. a little, it's, a, it's an older guy movie. Owen Wilson um, though is, is in an army movie or military movie? Oh. Owen Wilson is the pilot who punches out behind Serbia. And it's, wow. Yeah. Does he sell it? Yeah, he crushes it. It's a really good movie. Okay. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's super cheesy. We should check it out. Okay. But that would be like a pararescue function. So within personal recovery, so you're also tasked to support like, uh, you know, whatever, whatever task force, you know, ODA or SEAL team or, you know, uh, the SAS, whoever's doing these like high profile hits, like you're also tasked for that dual personnel recovery mission. So uh, 
I came on alert one morning at like 2 a.m. We would do we would do shift change at like 2 a.m. You know, you work zero two to fourteen hundred. The other guys work fourteen to zero two. So there's twenty four hour uh, coverage. Get on shift. So hold like, on, sorry, sorry. Where are we now? Like we're in Af- we're still in Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we're in southern Afghanistan. And what during, year? Uh, uh, let's say this was 2009, maybe 2009. Okay. And uh, we were on alert and I come on shift and with my, my three other guys who were on alert with me and we get there and all's, all hell's breaking loose as we walk in. Hey, we have this, this task force who is requesting a CSAR bird, combat search and rescue. So they want to hoist. And uh, we just come on shifts. So we're like, hey, we'll take it. Like the other guys go home, go sleep. We got it. So like we're scrambling, like getting everything, you know, like grabbing a bite of food, jumping on the helicopter. And you're flying out and it's like a 45 minute flight away and you're trying to get as much detail as you can. And you're flying through these like valleys and you're getting like illumination flares are popping up from the, you know, the bad guys are trying to spot you. They're trying to shoot you down. And uh, overhead, there's an ISR bird like a like, I don't know what it was, maybe a you know, KC-135 or, or something. It's not a CSAR, ISR bird. Anyway, there's an airplane overhead. that's like the on scene commander for this ground unit. So we're trying to get more detail on this 45 minute flight out, but like we keep taking all these evasive maneuvers because there's illumination flares being launched and you can hear like, you know, you can see like muzzle flashes as people like shooting at your helicopter. So we get out and like we get on overhead and we're trying to communicate with the JTAC, the Joint Terminal Air Controller on the ground. And he's like, hey, we had this, uh, this incident where two guys, Special Forces guys, were pushing a motorcycle, um, a dirt bike that they'd used on this assault through this field and there's all these wells like a well in the afghani sense of the word is not like english countryside bricks nightly stacked with like a little wooden bucket that goes down wells are these giant holes in the ground that go down like 80 feet and there's like 50 of them that they have dug over millennia to like you could probably find a picture if you want to overplay it's a really just search like afghani wells okay so it's pitch black pitch black there's there's no moon it's like in this valley and we have these two guys that fell into a well with a dirt bike and sensitive equipment and they are like in their mind they're like all all we need is a hoist to go down this thing and hoist these guys out now being familiar with the helicopter as you are you can imagine how willing a pilot would be like oh yeah let me just hold a hover over a hole in the ground in a pure blackout condition where i have no communication with a guy on a hoist lower somebody into a, into a well with all hell break like no way they're not they're never no pilot ever is going to buy off on that hoist mission so we are tasked with the the recovery at that point so we hit the deck i jump out with my teammate and we go over and we're talking to to the guy on the ground and it's pitch black, right? Like so black, like NVGs aren't even working. It's it's that dark out. So hold and on, sorry. This this is a Afghani on a dirt bike. This is this is a, a special an army special forces team okay. that had Afghani commandos, and they went and did an assault uh, a raid on a village that was moving weapons and IEDs and narcotics, and it was very much like a a, a, a lot of bad guys live there. Yeah. So as part of their as part of their their assault mission was to, to go and capture and roll up a lot of these suspected bad guys in this village. So part of their, their assault, they come in on 47s, they come out the back like dirt bikes and they cruise over and they you know, kick down doors and ruffle up all the bad guys. And then they, they get back to the HLZ and the helicopters come and pick them up and everybody flies home. 
So they access via dirt bike. That's so bad. Yeah. Some of the guys. So some of the guys have dirt bikes. Some are on foot, but they definitely have dirt bikes. And okay. one of the dirt bikes had, had died and they were pushing it back to the HLZ and they fell into this like 80 foot well down to the bottom of this well. So it was, we were tasked to go and then recover them and, and get them out. So we land, I get out and I'm talking to this guy on the ground and he's like, yeah, I think they're in this well. No, maybe, maybe. And he's like giving me a tour of all these wells, but he's using white light. Meanwhile, this airplane overhead is, is talking to everybody on this one frequency. And they're like, Hey, there's all these bad guys like coming up the road. Like they're looking for a fight. They have guns, they have RPGs and they know you're there. So like I would either hunker down or clear us hot to like provide some, you know, air support for you. So we were just kind of like chilling at the moment. The helicopter, our helicopters were circling around. At this point, it's like, this is gonna be a long process. Let me bring in my other guys. And so they, the other helicopter landed, those PJs jumped out. Our helicopters at that point were bingo. And they had to fly to this other base that was like 30 minutes away. And they're like, hey, call us on SATCOM whenever you're ready for a pickup, you know, God be with you, good luck. So they leave us on the ground in the middle of this like dark Afghan valley to solve the problem of getting this, uh, this, this remains, uh, out of this, out of this well. So it also happens that this part of Afghanistan is, uh, the topography resembles like a pool table. It's just completely flat with big ass holes in the ground. So we have a rope system. We have enough to set up a three to one rope system. If we had like, I don't know, an anchor, uh, they didn't, the ground team didn't have any vehicles. There was no like Humvees or anything like that. So we just had, we had dudes and we had a rope. So the, the, uh, the intent was that we would do one of my teammates would repel off of me. I was the anchor at the time. I was the biggest dude. I was like two thirty, just like, Bleh. and, uh, and my buddy like takes off his body armor, takes off his weapon and just made himself as light as possible. He's still a 200 pound dude. And, uh, he repels down off of me, goes into the bottom of the hole. I'm the anchor. I'm just kind of holding him there, holding him nice and steady. And uh, he gets down and the, the radios don't work, right? He's at the bottom of a hole, I'm right here. So the radio does not do this. So we have one guy at the edge of the hole who's like communicating everything. Yeah. And, and oh, okay. the, as, he, as the dirt bike fell, the fuel tank ruptured and it also stirred up all this like silt and dirt. So the atmosphere at the bottom of this well is completely toxic. It's like, you know, there's fuel fumes, there's, there's dirt, there's dust. There's like, you know, there's a, a, a dead Afghani commando right there. And like, it's pitch black. So my buddies who's off at the end of the rope is like, Hey, I think the only way we're going to get this guy up is if I tie him to me. And this is like, we didn't know it at the time, but it was like the biggest human that Afghanistan has ever produced was, was deceased at the bottom of this well. So we had like 500 pounds of dude attached to this, this dynamic or the static rope, which was then coming up out of the well and then connected to me as I was the anchor. We don't have any mechanical advantage. All we can do is work together and grab a rope. That's about as big around as a Sharpie, pull it a little teeny bit and then reset. Every time that, that rope, that progress, I had to capture it on an ATC. I had a sit harness on. So like I'm leaning back and I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to use my friction device and I'm trying to capture, I'm starting to get really tired. And they're probably maybe six inches off the floor of the bottom of this like 80 foot well. And I'm like, this is like really exhausting. I'm holding basically 500 pounds 
in like a half kind of like deadlift, like my, my legs are bent and I'm, I'm holding it and I'm, I'm starting to shake and every little bit of, of, of progress, they let go of the rope. So all that weight comes onto me to like capture it. Meanwhile, our little group of bad guys is starting to get a whole lot closer and the, the airplane overhead's like, Hey, you guys should like really like be worried or like at least be aware that these dudes are coming. They're looking for a fight. They're looking for you. Like, you know, we can, we can lob some, some rockets their way or whatever. So at this point I'm like, Oh great. I don't have access to my weapon. My buddy is now at the bottom of this hole dangling. And like, we have to get him up and out of this hole. I don't care about the dead guy. We have to recover him. Yes. But like, I need to get my buddy out of here. So this process goes on for like 20 minutes, man. And we recruit some, uh, some special forces dudes to like, Hey, can we need more people to like help us haul? Like we got to get, we got to get this, these dudes out of this hole. Um, so we end up, it ends up happening. And like at this point, like I'm really, I'm not doing so hot. Right. I'm, I'm kind of like sick. I'm really exhausted because I've been my grip. Like I can't unmake a fist. Like my hands are like, like fisted shut. And like, I have this like aching in my body and like, I just really feel like really, really sick. Stand by, you're standing, you're like, you're not sitting in this no, position? No, 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 well, I couldn't. There was nothing to yeah, dig my no, feet into. There's no rock to like no, no, push. No. If, yeah. I, if, I was, if I was sitting, I, I would just slide on my butt and I would end up in the hole in the with hole. them. So like, so like, I'm in this like half deadlift, like really everything is engaged and I'm just begging these dudes to like drive all their shoulders into me so that I don't keep sliding forward. Like I got the capture, like I'm holding the rope, and like, we're, we're making progress, we're getting closer, but like, I don't, I can't sustain this. So we end up getting him out of the hole. My buddy, the first thing he does, he sticks a finger in the roof of his mouth and he scrapes and it looks like mud. And it's like, it's like the dust, the dirt, the fumes, the diesel fuel or the, the, the dirt bike fuel. And it's like caked in his mouth. He looks like shit. I look like shit. And now these other dudes show up and they're, they're starting to get close and now they want to fight. And we're just like laying there like, like, oh, let's just lay here, man. We'll let these other guys like handle this or like calling an airstrike or whatever. So we call our helicopters and they're like, yeah, we, we can be there in an hour or this, this special forces team can exfil. We can get on their helicopters and they'll be there in 20 minutes. So it's like, okay, we'll get on the plane with these other cats in 20 minutes or this helicopter. So like I'm sitting there and like my vision's like starting to fade. Like I'm not doing so hot. And like, of course I'm telling everybody like, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm good. I'm great. And like, we finally end up, we, we get up out of there. We, we extract, we go to this other base and so, like, hold on, you did, you get your buddy out of this hole. Yeah. We get the, we get the buddy, we get, we get the, the, the remains, out, uh, the, the, uh, the recovery, we get the bodies out of the hole and we throw a thermite grenade in to like melt whatever's in there. You know, there's like sent, there's like weapons and a dirt bike, but we just destroy everything. So we accomplished the, our mission and we get everybody out. And, and so you did that we, with the the aid of other folks pulling the rope like yeah we, we had like we had like eight people ultimately that were helping to pull this rope and i feel like ascenders like, would have helped with that huh like to grip on the rope because you can't of course yeah rope. i mean you can't ascenders would have been wonderful so yeah. it's like you know maybe a mechanical advantage but we didn't have that we had we had some some pj ingenuity and like a who ya never quit mentality so we, yeah. we we accomplished that mission and then um so we fly back to this other base with on the 47s and our helicopters meet us there and by this point, I'm like, I'm like, I'm really sick. Like I'm dry heaving. Like I can't, I can't like do, I'm like shaking. So I get in the helicopter and I like, I have like my buddy start an IV on me and like I give myself an IV in the other arm and I'm just like, pump me through, give me all the ringers, give me everything you can do. And, uh, I went back when we got back to the hooch, like I went pee and it was like, like brown, like dark brown. And I was like, man, I'm like, 
I'm really sick. Like I, I think I pushed it a little, a little too hard on that mission. Um, but, uh, and then, so like we were back on alert, like 30 minutes after getting back and then like went back to flying missions. You're on, yeah, I probably flew like eight more missions that day. Not like, not to that level. Um, but yeah, man, there's stuff like that, like diving, doing a body recovery in a river and getting stuck in a tree. Like there's all kinds of like random stuff that you find yourself in. Combat is a very unpredictable place. And when you're tasked with search and rescue in a combat scenario, like you have to be prepared for any and everything. You have to be prepared to jump into a high altitude drop zone and like sit on a patient for three days. And you have to be prepared for somebody to take a dirt bike into a crowded um, marketplace and blow up, blow it up and kill 30 people and injure 90 more. Like these are all the situations that you could be tasked to respond to in any given day. And that's why like the, the training pipeline for pararescuemen is so diverse and so lengthy is because you're, you have a tremendous amount of responsibility on your shoulders when you, when you finally graduate and it's ensuring, you know, that, that we can preserve as much life as possible as the, is the ultimate goal. Mm. Yeah. I don't want this podcast to last forever, but last question, and it's a pretty basic child like one, but what was an instance where you, you really thought you'd die? Hmm. I had far too many of those, man. Unfortunately, what would be the, what would be like the most? Mm. Well, mentioned uh, mentioned doing a body recovery in a river. Um, so you're in a river in Afghanistan in a dry suit, and the bottom of the river is it's flowing pretty rapidly, and the water's silty at the bottom. So the second you're four feet below the surface, it's pitch black. You can have your hand here; you don't see anything. You're doing everything by feel. And the dry suit, if you're, if you're not familiar with the dry suit, it's basically like a, a plastic bag that you're in that is your own sort of life support system. You have a full face mask on, which is providing your air, your tanks are on your back, and your thermoregulation comes from this dry suit. Dry suits can become flooded if a hole gets in them and you basically lose buoyancy and you don't drown because your, your BC, your buoyancy compensator is the dry suit. Anyway, at the bottom of this river, looking for, a, uh, looking for a, a, a vehicle that was blown by an IED up into the river with uh, packs on board who, you know, we were doing the, the body recovery. And I'm under the water with a tag with a line attached to me and the water is moving, man. You know, it's a river. And getting underwater and like feeling my way around and then like realizing that like, wait a minute, like I'm in a tree. Like this is like, I, I'm, I'm in a tree underwater and like I can feel that I'm in a tree and like feel it. Like, whoa, like that's, oh, oh my, oh my, oh my God. And at this point, it's like, it's like your regulators getting caught on things, your mask, like you're like feeling it poking your body and like, like, dude, like, is this going to puncture my dry suit or my lines tangled up? And there's a little bit of current underwater, which is pushing you into, into this tree. So I start to recognize that I've been underwater for quite some time and it goes from looking for this, this remains to like, Hey, I should probably like find an escape route out of this tree. So it's like doing that breath, slowing it down. Like if I breathe too fast right now, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to Winchester my, my air in this tank and I'm not going to survive versus like, okay, how can I approach this situation with being as calm and deliberate as I possibly can. So the first order of business is like, okay, grab a purchase point, grab onto some branches so that I don't get pushed deeper into the tree. Take a deep breath. 
okay, which direction is making the branches smaller? Because that's probably the direction that I want to go versus if they're getting thicker and I'm getting deeper into the tree. Then it's like, okay, let me get rid of this line because this line, though it's my lifeline to the surface, it's not doing me any good because it's getting wrapped around the tree. So I reach down, grab my dive tool, and I start like like cutting things that I know are like catching me. And it's like, thankfully, it's it's a wet tree that's probably been underwater for a while, so it's like easy to like cut through. It's like real bendy. All the while, like that creeping voice of like this is how you're going to die, dude. You're going to drown at the bottom of a river in Afghanistan. Like this is like your, your last breath right here. And it's like, how do I turn that voice off and like accomplish what I need to do to get out? So it was through this like process of like silencing that voice, constant, like recentering with like purposeful deep breath and deliberate action. I freed myself and swam to the surface with like my reserve air was like about to, I had like, like 10 breaths left, man, on that, on that tank. Um, but, uh, yeah, got up and in that moment I was, I was, I was really shook up. And then, um, after that, there was a lot of like realization of like, Hey, I could, every time I leave this, the confines of this, this hooch, this like, you know, this little, uh, uh, team room on base, like I run the opportunity, I run the risk of never returning alive. And um, it was a lot of experiences like that or showing up to firefights or stuff like that, where it's like you're, you're just constantly dodging bullets. So um, there's a lot of experiences like that. But that was probably the most focused one. Do you get that thought of why am I doing this? Should I be doing this? Of course. I, I think you'd be you know foolish not to. Um, there's very much like a, a, a questioning of. Like how many bullets can I continue to dodge? And, you know, for some people that takes a toll. And, uh, I was one of them. I was like, I, I, I need to be out of this career field after a while. I just recognized that like my, my mindset was like more about self-preservation, um, than being able to just give all that I had for the rest of eternity. And, in making that decision to, to no longer do that mission, I found myself like at another crossroads in life. Um, but yeah, you definitely have the, the thoughts of like, is this for me? Um, but in those moments, like you, you're there, you're going to show up for your, your patients, your survivor. And even if that's yourself, so. I really get as far as your, your whole, the mindset approach. Cause yeah, I, I did my, my little research there as far as seeing what you're up to now. And it's really inspiring. I love watching you tumble around in the water with your sons there. You just did the whole, like, what do you call that? Like a gorilla roll or whatever, like where, where they just tossing you around, kicking you, doing the whole, I guess, similar to that, that one man survival thing that you were talking about. And then you swam a, an underwater 25. Yeah. And it, it's just cool seeing you, you getting after it fitness wise, you're doing all these sports, but you also just seem to have a centered life as far as revolving around your family now. And it, it's would be on the other side, man. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of people aren't here in the same situation and, uh, I'm thankful to be here. I witnessed far too many people whose lives ended tragically too early so how can I honor their sacrifice? And I, I do that by, you know, by making the most out of the experience and the time that I still have left. So yeah. it's my way of honoring their, uh, their ultimate sacrifice. Yeah. And I think you're doing a great job at it. Any parting words for, for people that are trying to go down this route? Man, you know, it's, uh, there's, you can prepare efficiently and, and set yourself up for the most success. And there's a lot of programs and tools out there. 
um, you know, from your guys's programs that you come up with. And there's a lot more information available for people if they want to make it. I mean, I think that people nowadays have a far better sight picture of what they're getting into, what they're going to be asked. So I encourage anybody who's pursuing these types of career fields to do their homework, to do their research, um, and to set themselves up for success and to persevere, to never quit. And to, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. Like becoming a PJ, being a PJ, it, it opened up so many doors post-military for me. And I, I'm so thankful every single day. And you know, I, I wish that for, for everybody who's uh, attempting it. And if you have any questions, hit me up on Instagram. I love talking to people who want to be PJs. Uh, What's your Instagram again? Special Om Parader. Yep. Yeah. I'll Get put it there. up on YouTube. Put it up. Yeah, man. Totally. And then, uh, yeah, never quit. Who yeah. All right, Matt Skull. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you.